So good evening. Tonight I thought I'd offer some reflections on impermanence. Huang Po says, develop a mind that rests on nothing whatsoever. The Buddha stated he taught just two things, suffering and the end of suffering. The essence of the teachings is the universal experience of suffering and the possibility of ending suffering. The Buddha realized, and I looked up realize, which means to become fully aware of something as a fact, understanding clearly, not like I should have had a V8, <laughs> right? So he realized in his whole system that suffering arises from grasping and non-suffering is revealed when there is letting go. Consciously allowing things to come and go as they are, we can recognize the true nature of every thing and see the impermanent characteristic of all that we take to be me, mine, and the world. What arises ceases. We know that on an intellectual level that all and everything is impermanent. We know, for example, that it was morning and now it is evening, that yesterday was sunny and today it is raining, or that we were once a child and now we are older. Even the body is changing. Every seven to ten years, we have a completely new body. Every cell in the body has been replaced and is new within that time frame. It takes ten years to regenerate a skeleton. Skin regenerates every 27 days, and that's if everything is working properly. We understand conceptually that everything is changing, even the stars and the earth, but can we perceive impermanence in a profound and immediate way? Until we understand our false assumptions about reality, that we are all attributing all sorts of solidity and stability where there isn't any, we won't experience the underlying peacefulness inherent in our hearts. When we see clearly the ever-changing nature of all conditioned phenomena, including our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and perceptions of self and other, the futility of grasping for certainty becomes obvious. Uh, my husband said that uh, he's given me permission to share this story with you, and he is a uh, Vietnam combat vet but I'm going to tell you how he got to Vietnam. So he's this 19-year-old Brooklyn boy, you know, African-American man growing up in the 50s and teenager in the 60s and uh, working-class background and finishing high school, had no idea where he wanted to go or what he wanted to do or what he wanted to have happen in his life. So 
back in the day, and for some that's still very relevant, he said, well, I'll join the army. You know, I'll see the world. I'll do this is during the Vietnam War. He joined the army. So he was in infantry. He went in and he got trained, and he got trained to be a mail clerk. So here he is, and you know, the mail clerk, that's like an ideal job. Everyone loves you because you're delivering the letters that come from home and whatnot. And uh, his first long-term place that he was stationed was uh, Alaska. This is a Brooklyn boy, Brooklyn black boy. Got stationed in Alaska. The land of a thousand nights or whatever they say about that. So he's in Alaska. It's freezing cold. He cannot stand it. He's not a cold weather person at all. Um, but the thing that really took him over the top was like the, the not getting dark and then not getting light for a long period of time. So they had these special kind of blind uh, shades that they could put on the windows. And, um, you know, so here he is, certainty, remember, grasping for certainty. He puts the blind up and there's a moose standing right in the window. And he said the horns of, the, he said it was humongous. And right then and there, he decided he had to get out of there. <laughs> so he went to the guy who he considered somewhat of a friend who was in charge of um, pushing orders through. And he said, man, you know, anywhere, I'll go anywhere. You know, I just got to get out of here. I can't take the cold and that moose, that, you know. <laughs> so the guy said, he said, well, you know, as far as I know, the only place that they're offering transfers to is Vietnam. So my husband's like, okay, cool, I'm a mail clerk, you know, I'll be in the city, I'll be just doing the mail thing, and won't be a problem. So the lieutenant or whatever he was pushed the orders through, and he went to Vietnam. And two days after landing there, his sergeant comes to him and says, Williams, you're going to be reordered, re-retrained -re for a different job. You're going to be the radio operator. So the radio operator is the one that walks through country with the radio on your back, i.e. target. So he went through whatever he went through and um, became the radio operator and spent a year in country with this radio on his back. And the first week that he was uh, with his unit on patrol and they were moving out from one place to another. He has the radio on the back, and the way they did it in the Army then, I don't know how it is now, that if you're in line and you have to stop for any reason, you step out of line, you make whatever adjustments you have to make, and then you step back in line. And the line keeps moving forward in front of you. And as the radio operator, he was near the front because you have to uh, radio in the coordinates and all this kind of thing for people to be aware of. And uh, so he stepped out of line because the radio was agitating his shoulders and he needed to, um, to adjust it. And uh, the person behind him, you know, stepped around him and kept moving and um, ended up being injured. He lived, but he ended up being injured um, by a landmine. And my husband says that, um, one, you know, the recognition of the blessing of that to the recognition of how his um, wanting and yearning 
for things to be different, ended him up in this place. And three, his, his ability to, um, while managing the fear, the daily fear of being in a war situation, was also able to cultivate um, this cultivation that we're doing here of letting things be. Like this is, the, this is how it was going to be for him for the next 350 days. Um, and he's come back intact and he's a very jovial, um, calm, peaceful man. Um, but that's a story where it'll get you at times when there's aversion to a particular circumstance or situation that's happening right in that moment and you think you can analyze yourself into a better place. So just you can remember this story when you're in a situation like that. In letting go, we know freedom. Taking the insight of impermanence to heart will have a revolutionary impact on one's life. A quote from uh, James Baldwin, who was an activist artist in the uh, 50s, writer, he's a writer. This was shared with me by Devin Barry, um, a colleague and friend. And James Baldwin was not a Buddhist. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun exorably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we, all, that, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives We'll imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying abyss from which we come and to which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. It is the responsibility of free men to trust and to celebrate what is constant. Birth, struggle, and death are constant. And so is love, though we may not always think so. And to apprehend the nature of change, to be able and willing to change. I speak of change not on the surface, but in the depths change in the sense of renewal. But renewal becomes impossible if one supposes things to be constant that are not. Safety, for example, or money or power. One clings then to chimeras by which one can only be portrayed and the entire hope 
the entire possibility of freedom disappears. And Chimeris is a thing that is hoped or wished for, but in fact is illusory or impossible to achieve. So the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. From in the Buddha's words, monks, form is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, that mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom, thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this, thus, as it really is, with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. This is what is said is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen. And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here, a monk sees the eye as impermanent. He sees form as impermanent. He sees eye consciousness as impermanent. He sees eye contact as impermanent. He sees as impermanent whatever feelings arise with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant or painful. She sees the ear as impermanent. She sees the mind as impermanent. She sees mental phenomena as impermanent. She sees mind consciousness as impermanent. She sees mind contact as impermanent. She sees as impermanent whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. This, nuns, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. They see the eye as suffering. They see as suffering whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. 
This is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. What is it we can meet in silence? Not the silence of ignoring or turning away or the uncomfortable at times awkward silence of not knowing, but the silence of the awakened heart and mind unfettered by a muddied mind. There's something very powerful and very sacred about holding what is going on in silence. There is a knowing of respect for those times in life you can't really know what to do or you can't really do anything. Sometimes it is a very honorable way of being with the impossible. When we bring mindfulness to our experience, when we sit and meditate, we are in the action of bringing forth a different way of seeing, a different way of understanding than the usual mundane everyday perception of experience. When insight is present, there is the coming forth of the and and knowing. Brian spoke about this the other day, the relative and the ultimate understanding. Before this mind training, and even at times when practice is alive and strong, we move in and out of seeing how things are and misperception. We go about our daily life looking at that life through one frame that has only one way of understanding. But when we remember or wake up, we can employ the practice and training that we have undertaken and we can see in a new way. This new way is most often enlightening and revealing and can offer a new way to live in the world which is always there. The world of seeing, this is how things are. It is one of the paradoxes of meditation practice that the stiller the mind becomes in meditation, the quieter it becomes, and the more we become acutely aware of how things are always changing. The busier the mind is, the more agitated the mind is, then the more the mind tries to create the idea of permanence and stability. This is partly because when the mind is really busy and active, it tends to take up residence in the world of concepts and ideas because that is what the mind is chasing. Ideas often have a kind of stability to them or we relate to them as if they are stable. So when we start to stop the busyness and chatter of the mind and we become still, then what we see are not concepts, but rather the immediacy of our experience. The immediacy of our experience is not a concept, and that immediacy tends to be seen as something that is changeable, as something that is changing all the time. In this practice, and in the Dharma of Buddhism, there is a lot of emphasis on the experience of change. It is a root teaching that can set us squarely on the path to liberation. 
We have been engaged in the training so that we can begin seeing this aspect of our present moment experience, which is always changing. We can notice that things arise, things pass away, that things are there that were not there before, and then they are gone. Sometimes the experience of impermanence can be acute and swift in normal life outside of retreat, and we can be changed by it. This experience, so when I was uh, actually on a six-week retreat back in 2013, a week into the retreat, a week into the retreat, um, a symptom arose in my body, a symptom that was pretty scary, um, so much so that the first three days after this symptom arising, all I could do was walking meditation at a, it's kind of like Rebecca talked about doing that stomping meditation, doing that walking meditation, just really trying to settle the fear in my mind. Had, you know, taken the vow and precept to be in silence, but I was aware that if I didn't get some information, I would never be able to settle down in this body, mind, heart. So having a friend who was a teacher, <laughs> I asked if I could use the computer to look up this symptom. They, I won't, you won't even know the <laughs> gender, they uh, agreed, and I promised all I would do is look up this symptom, which I did. I didn't go all over. However, in looking up the symptom, <laughs> it actually uh, could have been two things. I was pretty much going to have to kiss life goodbye. Or it wasn't too big a deal, and it was something that could be handled once I got off retreat. So I got this information and um, proceeded. Uh, uh, Joseph was one of my interviewing teachers, and Carol was one of my interviewing teachers, uh, to let them know a little bit about what was going on. And Carol was very uh, sympathetic and very supportive. And Joseph, in his own way, was as well. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, the instruction that he gave me was, well, this might be a really good time to engage death contemplation. <laughs> Which, at this point, you know, I'm, like, coachable. Like, all right, that's what I'll take on. And... Uh, took it on and basically decided that um, I was going to keep my commitment to myself for this time to pause and come to know the authenticity of the truth of this system. And if that meant that when I got out, um, it was a call that caused uh, this body, mind, heart to have to engage with saying goodbye to this world, I was going to be all right with that. And every, right, somebody let me, uh, sent me a note last week saying, you didn't finish the story, you just left us hanging. So everything was fine. <laughs> I did have to have surgery, which wasn't too monumental. And um, it was a pivotal moment in my practice and my life. Not unlike my two years of uh, living dangerously, which you all heard about last week. And the end of that story is we did lose the house. We moved in with my mom 
who is now 95, and it's the best thing that could have happened. That's the end of that story. This experience of the body being not I and the impermanence of the nature of things for me was a real lesson in how quickly things can change. If one is able to access courage and intention, one can come away from a life-changing experience asking the questions, how do I want to live my life? What is really important and valuable? What does it mean to be a human being? What do I want to contribute to this earth walk? The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I don't know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at least, at last, and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So there are these three characteristics, the three primary insights that give insight meditation its name. The first of the three insights is impermanence. The second is suffering. The third is not self. The three characteristics are emphasized in this Buddhist tradition for a number of reasons. One reason is that they are true, that these truths can characterize our experiences, that there are some very deep and important aspects to them, that there is impermanence, that there is suffering, and that there is not self. Another of the reasons why it is important in meditation to have some insight into the three characteristics is that they are a means for a vehicle to liberate the mind. The three characteristics are closely interwoven and thus the teachings on the one are made clearer by the teachings on all leading to understanding and wisdom. The characteristics of impermanence reveals the characteristic of suffering and both together reveal the characteristic of not-self. This route to understanding the characteristic of non-self 
is taken because the selfless nature of things is so subtle that oftentimes it cannot be seen except when pointed to by the other two characteristics. When we recognize that the things we identify as ourself are impermanent and bound up with suffering, we realize that they lack the essential marks of authentic selfhood and we then can stop identifying with them. Understanding the three characteristics and employing practice offer the possibility for the mind and the heart not to be shackled, not to be obstructed, not to be held back by fear, by distress, by greed, by holding and clinging. This makes possible this very deep insight into these three characteristics. With this practice, we aim to open to the world of impermanence in all of the ways that it exists. How can we use this understanding to see in such a way that it helps us become freer? Can we ask the question to become motivated to go in that direction, partly sourced by the opening heart, which inclines towards compassion? and care for ourselves and the world around us. This world and these times need people who can be present in ways that are not filled with suffering. In the Dhammapada, there is a statement about these three characteristics. It is very interesting, this statement, because of what it adds. The basic formula for the three characteristics says, all created things are impermanent. All created things are suffering. All things are not self. It says that all created things are impermanent and that all created things are in some ways not satisfactory. But it also then changes and goes on to say that all things are not self. And I think you'll hear more about this in some of the Dharma talks that are coming. Perhaps more about that shift is possible to understand as a basic formula. Here is the reading from the Dhammapada. All things are impermanent. Seeing this with insight one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All created things are suffering. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. All things are not self. Seeing this with insight, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. This is the path to purity. We need to see impermanence as an immediate perception. One of the noble things to do in human life is to get to the heart of human suffering, the causes of it, and somehow, through practice, 
and understanding come to terms with it. The insight into impermanence allows us to understand that our life is precious and it is short. So for our own well-being and for the sake of others, let's intend to know and understand impermanence and look at what is really important and bring it into the world. It may be really important to get to the root of suffering. Another way to hear this is that you are interested in happiness and that you want to live a life that is happy and peaceful and somehow it has a deep abiding sense of well-being. This is a sense of well-being that is not easily blown away by the causes and conditions of the world or one's life. All the defilements ultimately stem from ignorance, which thus lies at the bottom of all suffering and bondage. Ignorance weaves a net of three delusions around the aggregates. These delusions are the notions that the five aggregates are permanent, a source of true happiness, and a self. The wisdom needed to break the spell of these delusions is the insight into the five aggregates as impermanent, anicca, suffering, dukkha, and non-self, anatta. This is called the direct knowledge of the three characteristics of existence. Anicca the rapid and endlessly changing nature of all things in life. Nietzsche, permanent. A Nietzsche, not permanent. The process of ripening takes time. We've been focusing on calming, stabilizing, steadying the mind. And now for some of you, it may be time to turn the volume up on Vipassana insight and start to look at the nature of these conditions and forms. There are three different levels or ways of experiencing impermanence. The ordinary level, available to everybody, can see that change is happening all around us all the time. The seasons, health, loss, births, marriages, work, financial standing, at times, change is tragic or wrenching, which brings suffering, and other times, change is a delight, like when something is unpleasant for a long time, and then it's over. Points of change like this often open the door to the possibility of shaping or creating something new. In other words, there is potential in impermanence and change. Thank God for impermanence and change. Oops. <laughs> when we really take in the impermanent nature of things, it gives a depth. Yes, yeah, some of you all coming along slowly. I got it. <laughs> when we really take in the impermanent nature of things, it gives a depth and richness to life that can be satisfying and or uncomfortable. But either way, there is beauty there, 
like jazz music or nature or sports? How do we participate in the world? If things were always permanent and fixed, then we could not change anything. However, we know the world is a changing world and a changeable world. And to some degree, we have some role in creating that change, starting with ourselves. One of the places that role has the greatest importance is the responsibility we have in directing the change of our own heart, our own minds, our own physical and psychological being, and our own spiritual life. Ajahn Chah. First one learns the Dhamma, but does not yet understand it. Then one understands the Dhamma, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not seen the truth of Dhamma. Then one sees Dhamma, but one's being has not yet become Dhamma. To become the Dhamma, it is difficult but possible for each person to come to and realize in their own heart the true nature of things is the way towards freedom. What is unique to Buddhism is not the experience of ordinary impermanence, but the experience of the second and third levels of impermanence. The second level is impermanence at the insight level. That is when we experience things without the filter of our labels and concepts. We tend to give things a semblance of permanence. We do it to ourselves and to other people and to our life all too often. We see ourselves in certain ways. We limit ourselves and put ourselves in certain categories and assume it is this way. To be able to drop behind the concepts or let go of the concepts is one of the results we seek from this practice. The component of mindfulness that is insight has to do with training the mind to relax enough so that we are not thinking about things anymore. That means things in the past, things in the future, or even things in the present. That does not mean we zone out or get mush-mind. It actually provides the ground for becoming more clearly perceptive of what is going on right here, right now. There is a clear and heightened sense of seeing what is happening now. When we stop thinking about things and see them in their immediate expression of perception and in presence, then we enter the experience of insight impermanence. Lastly, we can then open to the third level of insight. This can be called the liberative level of insight. That is the experience of liberation that can come in the moment when we see impermanence so acutely and deeply so that the heart says, I might as well give up. I might as well let go. 
I can't do anything else but let go. Kind of what I was talking about when I told you all this story of my two years of living dangerously. For some people, the deep insight into impermanence is called a gate to liberation. This is the avenue by which some people relax the heart. That is all the heart wants. The heart and the mind is the same. The heart-mind wants us to be so deeply trusting and settled on itself that it is not even holding on to itself. There is so much trust in the heart that there is no need to contract or hold on no matter what is going on. We are engaged in this activity of awakening. In some ways, we have a faith or a trust in this process That's why you've chosen to be here for three months or six weeks out of your life. We think we are moving through the retreat. However, the retreat experience keeps unfolding in the heart. Two weeks arise and now dissolve. Sunday arises and dissolves. Monday and dissolves now Tuesday, and dissolving. Life keeps manifesting, although we think we are moving through life. We are not destined to be doomed by our worries and our fears and the things we have not attended to. Everything is shifting and dissolving. You've done some really hard work here in preparation. You've worked with many difficult states that you are not ordinarily engaged with in day-to-day living. You have faced undigested exhaustion, drivenness, yearning, frustration, worry, anxiety, sadness, fear, terror, joy, elation, high energy, low energy. There is, at this time in retreat, for some, a desire to just coast, to just sit back and enjoy the samadhi developed, the freshness and aliveness of the heart and mind that has been cultivated. It is enticing and delicious, but if you listen for that still small voice where the inner world is screaming for attention, rock on. Continue the journey with conviction of an empowered practice. Use this time well. You've done all the prep work. Now you get to create the delicious meal each of us, defining for ourselves what is this contemplative path all about. We can use these moments of beauty and sacred space that are the fruits of our effort and in the composure, simplicity, and poise seize becoming and look into what we take ourselves to be. What is me? What is my, what is mine?
what is myself. There is an opportunity here as a result of the many hours and continuous effort you have extended to create the conditions that support the exploration of what causes suffering. We can look at all the ways we strive to find ease, peace, happiness, which are much of the time misguided attempts to quell what is hard to be with. Use some of this accumulated power that you have cultivated to rest in that safe harbor. Understand that calm is conditioned, that feeling good is conditioned, that happiness is conditioned, just as sadness, anger, and frustration is conditioned. In other words, attachment to pleasure and aversion is just the same and causes disturbances as we cling to the pleasant and resist the knowing of this is how it is with the aversion. When the subtler forms of aversion are present and we do not see them, we can get dull or restless, remembering all the various ways we've talked about hindrances. When we allow what is to be, whether judged and experienced as good or bad, it softens the heart. Allowing it to be softens the heart. The greatest obstruction to samadhi is aversion. Not liking this, not liking that, causes contraction and muddied seeing. Sometimes states are so powerful There is nothing you can do about it, but just bow into it and surrender. Be kind and have compassion for yourself. We come to learn that willpower or cajoling or all manner of attempting to shift what is arising has no real influence on the state other than perhaps solidifying it even more. Or, if there is some shift, we incorrectly think that there's something we did to make it happen. What we can bring to meet the condition is to acknowledge, ah, it is like this. The approach or attitude is of utmost importance. It is best to just relax and see what arises in the mind as it comes. When we have been seeking to control things and then we relax, what comes up is all the things we have been pushing away or not attending to. I heard this first from Kitisaro who passed it along from Ajahn Suchito who calls these un and non-attended to places, the orphans of consciousness. These are the conditions we lock away into the dungeon of our consciousness. Things we don't like, the doubts, the jealousies, the dreads, the shame, the resentments, all those hindrances. It is one thing to be overwhelmed by them and another to push them away. We must Learn how to welcome these states. 
This is what frees the dungeons of the heart. Notice their nature is always changing. The nature of these conditions we call me. The nature of the feelings, the body, the mental formations, all phenomena arising and passing away. Impermanence, constant and consistent change. You can depend on that. It is the nature of things. The nature of moments of knowing. Pay attention to the characteristics of your experience, your direct experience. So difficult, but so simple. If one really knows change profoundly, then all the profound insights of not-self and emptiness can flow out of that. Do we really know that in a moment-to-moment way? Do not underestimate the power of not just being able to say conceptually that things change, but the power of making it immediate so that right now the changing of my voice, the changing nature of the Dharma talk, when we break it down, sound is touching consciousness and dissolving. Touching consciousness and dissolving. And this so-called talk is being punctuated with moments of seeing, moments of hearing, moments of body awareness, a cascade of change. When we see Anicca, then we see Dukkha, the second characteristic. Not reliable, not a value judgment, just meaning it is this way in this moment and shifting the next. If we lean on a condition thinking it is solid and then that condition shifts, we fall. If we lean on a calm state, take a stand on it, when it shifts, we fall. Obtaining a calm state but not seeing it is unsatisfactory because it too shall change. When we see change, we start to see all things just like the dawn becomes midday and then midday becomes dusk. Things by their nature become otherwise. If we expect some condition to make us happy, calm, some praise that leads to suffering, These conditions and circumstances are not our possessions. Each sound, each thought, each impression touches consciousness and dissolves back into the original brightness, the immeasurable. Letting it all be as it arises and dissolves back into presence. Contemplate that the nature of conditions is to come and go. Whatever arises, ceases. Be with the breath changing, realizing that it is not a thing, the in-breath, and then it is gone, and the out-breath, 
and then it is gone. Our willingness to be with the nature of things changing is profound. The Buddha taught that the power of even one moment of recognition of change is immense. Thoughts coming and going, conditions coming and going. When we can see this as it touches consciousness and dissolves, let it be dharma, let it be change, just letting it be. Letting each one dissolve back into Dharma and find the peace that's inherent in the heart. Letting changing conditions just be what they are. While things are empty of independent existence, they are also empty of our views about them our labels and opinions, including thoughts of me and mine, are just what the mind projects. An ocean or a tree doesn't give itself a name. It just be. In the same way, all that we take to be me is fundamentally empty. In a process of constant change. Its existence is dependent upon a whole range of conditioning factors. From the Diamond Sutra, all conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. All the dharmas, all our experiences come and go. They are like shadows. Are shadows isolated entities? A shadow might look like a thing, but it is intimately connected with light that is cast off from other objects. It is not separate. It's linked to something else. All conditioned dharmas are like dewdrops. They are like jewels on the lawn, but are they independent entities? They're there, but when the sun rises, they're gone, evaporated. They're gone. Are we separate selves? It may appear that we are, but other things like the sun, the air, the nourishment we take in, all continually sustain and support us. Martin Luther King's a piece of the sermon he gave on peace. All life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think 
that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world. You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go into the kitchen to drink your coffee for the morning and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea. That's poured into your cup by a Chinese person. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast and that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Ajahn Chah says, Know when the mind is peaceful. Know when the mind is a little more peaceful. Know when the mind is deeply peaceful. Thank you for listening. Let's sit for a moment. my poem offering for this evening. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. 
Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. May the merits of our practice benefit all beings. May we have the courage and fortitude and capacity to lean into grace to carry us through these moments, these days, these times as we make our way sometimes with challenge sometimes more easily towards freedom. Mm